It's 2010, and Justin Wren walks in to wrestling practice. He doesn't know it, but his whole life is about to change. An intimidating presence at six foot three with sandy blonde hair that cascades wildly down his neck and a tough guy beard to match, he opens the door. I showed up one time to training and I showed up maybe five minutes late, but it was like everyone had already been there for a long time. So, and they're all looking at me. The air in the room felt off. And I was the young gun, but they had, coach pulled me into his office and said, hey, we just had a vote. It was 34 to one. You're no longer part of this team. As Justin walked out of the practice gym, he took a deep breath. Wrestling was his life. It had been his promise of salvation after a difficult childhood. I wanted to do it because I grew up getting very heavily bullied, like relentlessly bullied from eight years old to 13 years old. And um, when I picked up the UFC VHS tape, I thought, these guys don't get bullied. And then I fell in love with the chess match of it. And he was dang good at that chess match. In high school, Justin got the chance to train with a pair of coaches who were former Olympic gold medalists, and it paid off. So in high school, I won 10 state championships, and I was a five-time All-American. I won a high school national championship, and then I went to the Olympic Training Center, and I won a Greco-Roman national championship. Everything was going great until a freak accident changed everything. And so I, we just fell out of bounds, and it was a freak accident. But I broke my elbow, dislocated it, tore the ulnar collateral ligament. It sounded like a grand slam home run, and it was brutal. Doctors told him he only had a 30% chance of ever fighting again. Devastated but steadfast, he started coaching other fighters while recovering. So I was actually just coaching, doing the wrestling part, and I hadn't even ever worn MMA gloves. MMA, as in mixed martial arts, the full contact combat sport where competitors grapple and fight in a violent, vicious manner. Not exactly for the faint of heart. This is what you see in the UFC or the Ultimate Fighting Championships. And I show up at a fight to coach, and I get off the plane, and my fighter, my, the guy I'm in his corner, is in the ER, actually ICU. Um, he had such a bad staph infection in his thigh that it had gotten into his femur bone and they thought they might have to amputate it and so he knew he was fighting something off but he was going to go through with the fight anyways then when they found it it had basically started in his femur and worked out and so I went I was the one selected to go to the press conference and tell the promoter that he's not coming he's he's uh, fighting for at least his leg if not his life and the heavyweight he was fighting was talking trash saying he ended up in the hospital one night early. I was going to send him there tomorrow anyways. And the promoter had seen me wrestle. said, hey, if you take this guy down, you'll beat him. You'll beat him up. You stay standing, he's going to knock you out. And I was like, wait, what are you talking about? He goes, I'm going to pay you to fight tomorrow. I see the smoke coming out of your ears, the steam. I know you want to beat this guy. You're a competitor. I'm giving you a chance. And I'm like, oh, you're you're going to pay me? He's like, yeah. (laughs) So I'm like, all right, let's do it. So I went there to say there was no fight. But instead, I ended up stepping on the scale and fighting the next night and ended up winning in less than two minutes, so. Justin was an immediate sensation with scouts looking at him from the UFC. At 21, he was picked as a cast member of season 10 of the Spike TV hit show, The Ultimate Fighter. It was weird. 
I mean, it was also awesome. And it was a great opportunity. I was coached by UFC Hall of Famers and world champions and guys that were on my wall when I was a kid. Like I had their poster and I wanted yeah, to meet them. And then they're my coaches, then my training partners and my friends. And we're having barbecues together and traveling. And he would start to enjoy the feeling of fame. I think I was at Costco one time and the guy came out with the rotisserie chickens. And then he caught me at the checkout line to like take a picture and... Um, or just take a picture of me. And I'm like, hey, just get in it, you know? Like, I'd love to meet you and shake your hand. So it got strange kind of early. But I think the danger zone was I made it my identity. That's mm -hmm. all I had. But what I was fighting the whole time was addiction, and I wasn't telling anybody about it. That's right. Justin had a secret. After his initial injury... After receiving the devastating prognosis that he only had a 30% chance to return to the ring himself, Justin had gotten hooked on OxyContin. Uh, I could hide it. So you had gotten this injury young. Mm. You now go in, you're fighting, you're rising the ranks, you become kind of famous, people are recognizing you, but you're hiding the secret, and that is that you're an addict. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, full-blown. Which is why... As he walked into that practice that day and things felt a little funky, he knew what was coming. He's like, I vouch for you. I want you to go get treatment, get sober, get healthy, but you can't show up for any of them, but you're not even showing up for yourself. Mm -hmm. And like, it's not fair to you for us to let you continue this way. And so that took me on a journey of like trying to figure it out on my own. And what did that mean? What, how, how? I was like, okay, I need a new foundation. What Justin couldn't have known is that in pursuing a new path, he would provide not only a new foundation for himself, but for thousands of humans who, for all intents and purposes, were forgotten by the world. In finding himself, he'd go through near-death experiences He'd see atrocities and inequities around the world that most of us couldn't even fathom. And he'd come to understand the meaning of happiness and of life more clearly than he ever could have hoped for. I'm Jamie Hess, media personality, wellness expert, TEDx and keynote speaker and coach. And after my own journey took me to some pretty dark places, it led me to believe that those who have seen the darkness see the light that much brighter. Each week, we hear one story of overcoming adversity and how it ultimately led to a change in perspective and an attitude of gratitude that turned pain into purpose, fear into fuel, and spurred massive success afterwards as a byproduct. Welcome to the Gratitudeology Podcast. Would you through the fire? Would you ride through the storm? Will you walk on a wire? Will you save me if I fall? Will you break through the madness? Set us down where we're safe. I'll be right here waiting till you find me again. So I'm going to sober up my own way, uh, I basically wanted to still keep the secret. Justin, who had spent his whole life grappling on the mat, 
now began to grapple with the hardest task of all, fixing his own life and reconnecting with his purpose. But then I had the opportunity to volunteer at a children's hospital. And the reason was there was a, a kid that was a fight fan and he had a traumatic brain injury. His whole family had watched him in fights. And I get invited to go to the hospital. And I do, and it, it was great. It was hard, really hard to see that. But to support the family meant something to them and it meant something to me. Seeing the impact Justin had, the nurses asked him back. And then they asked him back again and again. I did that for a year. How old were you? I was 23. That is remarkable. I don't know many 23-year-old men, wrestlers, MMA fighters, that would go volunteer at a children's hospital. Oh. I think that's pretty remarkable. Oh, thank you. Justin is incredibly humble, but in all honesty, can you imagine 23 years old and having the humility and open-mindedness to spend his time in service in a children's hospital? I meant what I said, that I don't know many young men who would do that. Of course, maybe that's the point, because it wasn't until he spent this time in service that his perspective began to shift. Well, it was... what it showed me is there's so there's people that are fighting in so much more real fights than I had ever been in. And maybe at that time I was a 23-year-old boy who could shave or needed to shave. Like, I, I, I wasn't a real man yet. And for me, being a man, we don't really have rites of passage in our modern-day society a lot of times. So I remember a conversation with these high schoolers when I was in high school. And I was like, when I can drink, I'm a man. When I can smoke, I'm a man. When I can have sex the first time, I'm a man. When I graduate college, I'm a man or join the military. And for me, my answer was when I can fight professionally, like that, then I'm a man. But I had some rude awakenings and losing that childhood dream that had literally become a nightmare. Um, and even having that nightmare ripped away from me out of my own control, um, it was a real wake up call where the kind of the service piece was kind of natural. And so I did it daily. And then it was the homeless rescue mission or the rescue mission for the homeless. And then it was an at-risk youth group. For a year, Justin was consumed with life lived in service to others. And it helped, but he knew there was more. He wasn't done helping or seeking. They say service keeps you sober, but somehow in your gut, you just knew to do that inherently. So now you have this idea to go overseas. Tell me about that. Yeah. The keynote speaker basically changed my life. Um, he shared a story. He was friends of Bear Grylls and had done survival training and, and lived with the Maasai tribe and the Vanuatu tribe that invented bungee jumping. And something resonated in his talk. Well, really, because three days before, I could basically say I had a sober vision, which is it's a bit of a long story, but it was what absolutely transformed my life because it wasn't psychedelic-induced, mm-hmm. which it would have been easier to say it was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. What Justin experienced shook him to his core. I just basically said a prayer, God, what do you want to do with my life? What do you want me to do with my life? And... I had a movie in my mind, and I've done a lot of visualization for sports. 
and dreams and goals and all that, but this, I didn't try to conjure anything up. And I was in a forest, and I was walking on a footpath, and I was clearing vines and thickets out of the way, and I heard drumming, and then I hear singing, and I come into a clearing, and I meet these people. And they acknowledged me, we didn't talk, but the first guy I met was coughing. And I knew that he was sick. I could count every rib on his side, and I knew he was hungry. And I knew that they were hungry, thirsty, poor, sick, oppressed, and enslaved. I just knew that they were enslaved, and that they felt forgotten. God. Kind of like that was their identity. It was just kind of like knowledge that flooded me or like a, a knowing of it. And I came out of that vision feeling crazy. Like, for, well, the reason was because I started weeping. And I cried more than any funeral or any heartbreak were all of them combined. It was a little puddle of tears about this big. And uh, not a little puddle of tears, if it's tears. And then I'm like, I can't tell anyone this. And it's really been over a decade of me trying to figure out how to even share this, because it sounds too out there. Uh, he shares that story and something in me says, I have to tell this guy. This is what I would call a shoot your shot moment. When the universe or our intuition tells us to act, speak up, we have two options. Ignore it, fearful of acting, or leap up and make a move. Justin decides in this moment, he's a move maker. I get my buddy's car and we start it up and we're about to leave and I go, wait, turn the car back off, I gotta go talk to this guy. And I go in right when he frees up and I'm basically just saying, hey, can I give you my number and when you find some time, can you give me a call? I have something to tell you. He goes, hey, I'm here, talk to me. And so I tell him the vision and right basically at the end of it, he says, I know who they are. And I said, what? He goes, they're the pygmy people and then they're in Congo Basin Rainforest. And I go, who, where? And he goes, I'm going in three and a half weeks. But the team of four that I was leading, the rebels took over the airport. Um, there's some terrible things happening there. It's a conflict zone and the U.S. State Department says no one for any reason go, like no American. He goes, but if you go, I'll go. If you don't go, you'll never know what would have, could have, should have happened. And so three and a half weeks later, me, Caleb, and Colin go. And to sum it up, we're walking on a footpath. We hear drumming. We hear singing. We come into a clearing. And that was when Justin saw him. First guy we meet is coughing. I can count every rib. It's the guy from the vision. I, was, I got so weak in the knees that I had to take a knee. I was dizzy. And it was the biggest, it's not even comparable to deja vu, really. And I know that sounds out there and crazy, uh, but so much so that the chief pulled us aside and said, everyone else calls us the forest people, we call ourselves the forgotten. And it was just like, whoa. The forgotten, just like his vision. Justin had found his forgotten people and he knew he had to help them. I didn't know what to do with that. And we saw some really tough things. I didn't know about the water crisis. I didn't know about hunger. I didn't know about um, people that call someone master or that have been enslaved. And just a lot of challenges that I'd never even known about. 
And I told Caleb, like, what, why are we here? What are we doing? Like, this is overwhelming. And basically he asked me, like, what are you going to do? And they were asking for water and land and, or we're brainstorming. What are some sustainable solutions? And it was a scout trip to see how we could help if there's a practical way, if anything could be done. I said, man, if I spent my whole life doing this, I feel like the visual I'm getting is trying to empty the ocean with an eyedropper. Like, it's so big and I'm yeah. so small. Like, would it even matter? And he said I had the wrong perspective. Like, each drop represents a human heart or soul or life. So, yeah, it matters. Every drop matters. And in this moment, a lifetime of fighting people turned into a mission to fight for people. Justin knew this was his fight of a lifetime. The one that was going to change his perspective forever. I didn't really know how to digest it, but I came back and I'd fall in love with the culture and the beautiful people. They're incredible. They're amazing. They taught me gratitude, like true gratitude. Tell me about that. Like how so? Um, they're the happiest people with the least amount of stuff maybe out of anyone on earth. And uh, they taught me a Swahili proverb, which is if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And that's all about community, but that's in their DNA. It's in all of our DNA, but they live it, they breathe it, and they display it, and they invite you into it, and where they did for me. And it's one of the greatest teaching moments of my life was that we can celebrate together, we can suffer together, laugh together. I mean, I've been in laughing spells where my cheeks hurt. So yes, Justin would learn a new sense of gratitude and appreciation for life that he'd come to cherish. But of course, he'd also encounter new horrors that he could have never fathomed. Uh, because my introduction to water crisis was burying a young boy. His name was Andy Bo. I held him when he took his last breath and blood came out of his ears and under my hands and I just never seen anything like that and or experienced that. It was something completely preventable. He was, he was how old? He was one and a half. They don't know their exact age, but that's about how old he was. The pygmy people are traditionally hunter-gatherers, so they live in twiggly huts, sleep on the dirt, the fire is their blanket or their space heater, no, no running water, uh, no toilets, no anything, right? They hunt, they gather until they're oppressed and they can't do that way of life anymore. And so Andy Bo was denied hospital treatment not once, but twice, so it was completely preventable. One, by access to clean water. They didn't have that. But two, it was $1 for the pills that would have cured him. It was too late in the game for that. So it was $3 for the one-shot cure. They took a chicken, um, a dozen eggs, uh, firewood, charcoal, and three and a half dollars of Congolese franc that they had begged for. And his mother was told, you're too dirty to come in here by a nurse. And the doctor said the real reason, which was, we won't waste our medicine on a pygmy animal. And so they, they think of them as less than humanly, literally. Right now we're building a hospital um, in honor of Andy Bo's like, life and legacy. And, and so right now the hospital we're building is like, it's open to all and no one's ever going to be denied treatment. At this point, Justin starts showing me some pictures from his time in Africa. There are images of him smiling, holding children with even bigger smiles, 
pictures of his blonde hair flowing wildly behind him as he completes basic chores around the village. And then there's one picture in particular that caught my eye. You can see it on our Instagram account at Gratitudeology. It looks like a pile of sticks and a big palm leaf. And Justin tells me, yeah, that's where I was sleeping for a year. That's my hut. I look at him incredulously. This man who, at this point in his life, had achieved some pretty great heights. He had trained with Olympic athletes, starred in a TV show, and lived a pretty comfortable life. Yet, here he was, about to explain to me about the intricacies of hut living. So you have to replace replace the leaves every few days because they dry up or it rains and they disintegrate. So you can flick through the wall, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, my record was fought pulling five roaches out of my beard in one night. Oh, stop it. <laughs> yeah. no. I've had a tarantula in my beard. No. Um, you think that's bad? Let's discuss his African diet. And I've eaten iguana and forest rat and cobra and black mamba and python and tortoise, which that's probably terrible to say. Um, so that's your primary food source. So you're also hunting. Well, you're there. I mean, not that you can go to the market. You're in I the middle tried of- to hunt or at okay. least attend the hunts, but I sound like a, uh, an elephant through the forest. They actually call me the vanilla gorilla too. Um, <laughs> albino rhino and the big pygmy. So I'm loud. The animals get scared and skittish around me because they're hunting with bows and arrows or spears. You got to be quiet. And yeah, so... Most of our food source was uh, antelope or wild hog or mostly rice and beans. Like that was like 90% of it was rice and beans. But it was clean water that was at the heart of the matter, or lack thereof, to be clear. And any drink of water we drank, I had to filter or treat with chlorine or iodine um, until we could get like drill water wells, and then we pick up a move, we'd have to filter all the water again every sip. Um, you can boil water, but it, it's the hot, humid rainforest, and you boil it, ash gets into it, you have to wait for it to cool down, and it takes six hours or something, four hours. And it's a long process, so the filters would break, we'd have to treat it with chemicals, other things. Justin knew this was his first move to help empower these beautiful people to create sustainable, clean water sources so they could be more self-sufficient and have the ability to thrive. Those other things for me and the team, which we're all locals, that's our whole model is um, let's provide a local solution to a local problem and be the change in your own community. And that's what they asked for was the opportunity. And we say opportunity is greater than charity, that it's about a, charity can be great, but opportunity is just always better. And so let's give a hand up instead of a hand out. And aid work shouldn't be a band-aid. Justin had gone to Africa, not really even knowing why he was there, other than a vision. His experience upon arriving had opened his eyes to the reality that these people were the happiest he had ever met, with literally nothing not even access to clean water or basic health care. It was time for him to head home with his mind spinning. I got on a plane, came back home, 
I just buried a young boy because of dirty water. And I get to the Atlanta airport and I had, had basically only had rice and beans. And there's a Popeye's chicken. And I'm like, okay, I'm hungry. I didn't have a meal on the plane. And so I go in and there's a mother and her daughter and the daughter's getting Coke, Coca-Cola. And her mom says, pour that out, you're drinking water. And the daughter takes a sip of the Coke. She goes, don't do that again. She takes another sip and, and it's like, you're grounded for a week. And then she drinks another sip and you're grounded for two weeks. She goes, what? I hate you, mom. And literally threw the Coke in the trash. And the word like, I hate you comes out and I get it. Teen, teenage angst and all that. But I wanted to just lovingly I grab them, put my hands on their back and just like take them and look at each other, look into each other's eyes. Like how lucky are we? We're alive. Like we should be grateful. Like you shouldn't be fighting or saying I hate over sugar, sugar water, literally. And I didn't, but that moment's just always stuck with me because like three days after that funeral was that moment. This was gratitude. That deep, visceral gratitude that sometimes we can only grasp when we've seen the flip side of life. And I was just like, how much more do I have to be grateful for? And so it really helped until maybe it didn't because I didn't do the deep work on myself to heal. Um, heal that addiction that was still festering. And here's the tricky thing about addiction. Abstinence does not equal cure. Many times as addicts, we'll try to remove ourselves from the situation. In recovery circles, this is called pulling a geographic, meaning we just get the hell out of Dodge. But just because we can abstain for a while doesn't mean the problem has actually gone away. Maybe I was sober and white knuckling it, but I didn't really have a solution to the problem. And I was just trying to help others with their problem instead of mine. So now you're back in America, you see this duality, this polarity yeah, duality. between these two cultures. You come back, you've been trying to put a band-aid on a gunshot wound because you've just been of service, so you've gotten out of your own head, but you never fixed the addiction. Yeah. Right? I guess I could say I had a staph infection from the inside out. Yeah, well, we always um, say in recovery, it's a God-sized hole that yeah. we tried to fill with drugs and alcohol. Right. But just taking away the drugs and alcohol doesn't fill the hole. Right. It's a spiritual solution that you mm. need, right? Service helps, but eventually, right, you got to do the work. You get back to America, you're, you're PTSD probably, right? Mm -hmm. What happens next? Yeah. So there was moments of being held at gunpoint by rebel groups and other things and, and taking women to the hospital after maybe uh, some brut being brutalized or raped and... and multiple times and, and those moments like you know you push through and, and you see progress being made and like people having access to clean water for the first time and those moments for me still to this day it's better than the Super Bowl and what I mean by that is I've attended the Super Bowl with friends that are playing or uh, the NBA Finals the World Series 
in the suites or whatever, kind of cool. Um, or the UFC fights, the big ones, and being in it and winning and having people chanting your name. And that does not compare to a community of maybe only 85 to 135 people getting access to clean water. Those cheers are different. That's not victory of like a game or sport. It's a victory of life. It's a victory over death. It matters, like truly deeply matters to each and every one of us, like to our humanity. So in between and, those high highs, mm -hmm. you're having these super scary lows where you're yeah. being held at gunpoint by rebels mm -hmm. or seeing women right. brutally attacked. And that leaves you shaken. Shaken because I wouldn't go to therapy. And not that I was super resistant to it, but I just thought, I'm a fighter, I'll figure it out. Like, just keep fighting through. Just push, 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 push until you can't push anymore. And it wasn't just emotional injury that Justin had endured. I had malaria several times and I had cerebral malaria and basically had to poison my brain to kill the parasites in my brain. And I lost 30, 33 pounds in five days and I had something called black water fever, which is 25, I think the mortality rate is anywhere from 25 to 50% of the people that get to die. So, like, that was traumatic, too, like, physically. And coming back, I, I, I needed help, but I didn't know how to ask for it. That's right. He had survived brain malaria, a year in a hut, the psychological pain of losing members of the tribe he had come to love. But Justin, now home, wasn't out of the woods yet. In fact... His biggest battle was yet to come. You're back in the U.S., you have a surgery, mm -hmm. and the second you took those pain yeah. pills, you're like, shit. Yeah, yeah. I, I told the doctor I couldn't have it, and but I had such a major surgery on my shoulder, I had an injury that um, you got to have it. Four pins put in there, I had to be completely immobile for eight weeks in a sling, and um, uh, anyways, it was tough and was right back on it. How could I found the magic recipe to life, service, purpose through service, and putting love and compassion in action and going from fighting against people to fighting for people, yet now be back in addiction? It doesn't make sense. If I could compare it to jujitsu for a moment, there's something called a rear naked choke where a guy's choking you from behind, uh, a man or woman's choking you from behind, uh, and you have to grab they're one hand with two hands to fight. It's called hand fighting. But there's one move called a, a body triangle where they can wrap their legs around and now you only have one hand to fight the choke. Well, now it's one hand on their two hands. It's impossible to fight that. But I would take it to another level where this has happened once in the sport, but addiction felt like this is what it was doing to me the whole time. Whereas a body triangle around both my arms locked around my waist and there, you have no hands to fight the two hands choking, strangling, taking your breath, suffocating you, and you just know there's no way out. And I thought I had tried everything, and everything I knew, and I just failed again and again and again. And so I literally took a one-way ticket down to Mexico, um, knowing I'm not coming back. Justin arrived in Mexico and checked into a hotel by himself. He wanted to be alone, where no one would find him. I 
I took equivalent to 80 oxys and five, two milligrams of Xanax and three quarters of a tequila, tequila bottle handle of it. I just knew I was going out. I was completely okay with that. Um, I just wanted it to stop. I was tapping out. I was waving the white flag. I was surrendering. I was saying, okay, I can't do this anymore. And, and it would be better for other people and, uh, for my family that it wouldn't be a burden. Um, and I don't know, it's hard for me to explain suicide to somebody, but, um, one time I thought of like when the twin, twin towers were attacked and they were hit by the plane and the people that were stuck above. And there was a video of like someone jumping out and it's like, oh, why would anyone do that? It's like, you're stuck in a burning building. Like my brain or my mental health or my uh, addiction was like being stuck in a burning building and I couldn't get out um, unless I did that. So what you take all those medications mm. and what happened next? I did that at noon uh, down in Tulum and uh, we're right above it and, um, and everything went black. I started getting numb. Um, uh, it was like I was paralyzed before I even laid down. I, when I went to sit on the bed, um, I kind of fell back without even trying to. And then that's when the room started closing or the just vision started disappearing and I knew I was going to sleep forever. <laughs> like, I thought forever. And it was a really, really um, weird moment because I had accepted it and I was okay with it. And then at six in the morning, the next morning, I woke up with a gasp of, <gasps> and my heart felt like it was pounding out of my chest. And I was in full body chills, cold sweats, and it, it, I was slow moving. But when I got up, my first thought was, well, actually right after that gasp, I was like, holy shit, I'm alive. All I knew was like I, I, I wanted to get my feet in the sand and, and get in the water, but I felt so much shame that I'd failed at that. I basically was trying to take my life because I was a failure and I failed at that. So I went and I got in the water and every wave that came over me, I was on my knees um, in the water and every wave that came over me was more and more shame. It was like shame, another wave of shame another wave of shame. I think of another reason I should feel shame. And even my mind saying like, someone would have found you and it's maybe it wasn't your mom, but it was going to still be someone like how, how selfish of you. I like, so one way, like I failed at doing that in another way, why would you ever do that? Cause that would have traumatized someone. And my heartbeat was changing pace. And something in my mind, the spiritual experience was like, be grateful for that beating heart in your chest. And so I just I thought it was kind of dumb at first. And then I was like, okay, I'm grateful for this beating heart in my chest. My eyes are closed. And then it's like, be grateful for the breath in your lungs. And I say that. And then I took a deep breath and said it again, just in my mind. And all of a sudden it switched from a wave of shame coming over me to a little bit of gratitude coming over me and a little bit of shame leaving and another bigger wave of gratitude coming over me and a little bit more of the shame leaving. And there was this whisper 
that was open your eyes. And it wasn't a literal physical whisper, but it was a sense. Open your eyes. And right when I opened my eyes, right on the horizon, the sun started to rise. And I'm partially colorblind, and I don't know if it was drug-induced, but I saw more colors than I've ever seen in my entire life. I don't think those drugs make you see colors more vividly, but um, I just sat there and cried and thought, wow. It was like the most epic sunrise of my life. It was this moment of, okay, I just knew. You know, it's just go get help. Like, be honest, be real, be right. different this time. It doesn't have to be this hard. Like, uh, you know, do something different and really, you never tried at this thing. This has been the biggest fight of your life. And for a normal fight, you go to all the best coaches and all the best training partners and you invest like crazy in it. Why wouldn't you do this? Why wouldn't, why wouldn't you go to fight camp for this demon or this big battle, this big opponent? Justin had fought in some of the most difficult conditions in the world, in rings with men who fight like animals, and in Africa with humans who he protected from getting treated like animals. He had stood up for a people otherwise forgotten, and in the process, forgot himself. What he finally realized was this. Much in the same way Justin had reached out his hand to offer help to others, he had to reach out that same hand and ask for help himself. And that's how Justin found himself getting sober, going through treatment, and even after all he had conquered, finally feeling for the first time as if he woke up each day in a true state of happiness and gratitude. So it just started to shift and change to where I think every day since I have said, when I wake up, and it just comes over me. It's not like uh, I'm on autopilot. I literally have a sense and a feeling. I'm grateful for the breath in my lungs. I'm grateful for the beating heart in my chest. And I am compassionate, ambitious, and resilient. And so let's go. Like today's awesome. Yeah. And I'm in the bonus rounds. Now it's like I get to do both. I get to fight for people, but I can't do it without like at least filling up first or just staying connected to the source, which the source to me is like this ever-flowing, mighty fucking river of love. And just stay connected to that because I would pull out and disconnect from it and then like everything would go to shit. And then if I just stay connected, like it, things just seem to keep flowing. Well, that is your energy to your core. I hope you know that. Yeah. Sometimes we can't perceive our own energy. I can tell you that from somebody who came up to you in a room from the first time, your energy walks into a room before you do. And uh -huh. it is just a giant wave of love. It's an incredible uh -huh. force field that's around you, Justin. And thank God Justin's light didn't go out that day in that lonely hotel room in Mexico because he had so much more to give. I'm so grateful for everything that's happened because even despite my failures, like the team that's there has flourished and the people are dedicated and committed and taking ownership and it's just beautiful to see. It's become way more than I ever thought possible. I thought it was gonna be 30 acres of land and two water wells. Now it's over 3,000 acres of land and 84 water wells and 54,000 people served. And um, So this is infrastructure you yeah, worked to help build. Right. It's not just water, it's not just development, it's community empowerment. I hope that it creates a new wave of charity, at least for 
these people who are asking for that. The real first goal was live with them, listen to them, learn from them, and then we'll find a practical way to love them, one that's meaningful and long-lasting. And so it's been beautiful now. The hospital is in, I'm so grateful, it's in Andy Bo's honor. So tell me about School. the hospital. So yeah. you've been, so how much money did you need to raise for that hospital? Need to raise 1.875 million, so. So most people, just, just let's clear this up. Most people would wish to make that much money in their life for themselves or, you know, in a couple of years. Yeah. That, that's, a, well, that's a pretty good goal for most people. Most yeah. people would look at that as like a real reach for a goal. Right. You've been working to fundraise this to build a hospital for an entire subset of people in another country that you just fell in love with helping. Yeah. That's pretty beautiful. So what have yeah. you raised so far? We've raised several million already. That's right, several million dollars. Justin has allocated the funds to building homes, starting farms, creating health centers and schools, replanting trees and a fish pond and beekeeping and sustainable jobs. It's the basic necessities of life, land, water, food, housing, education, healthcare, uh, and job creation. And so literally creating an actual sustainable community from the ground up, from nothing to something like roads, infrastructure, solar. And the part that Justin is perhaps the most excited about? I think we're doing a real maternity ward where there'll be safe births, as I've seen it too many times, and one was on my last trip. I went down the mountain because I had malaria again, and we had the only vehicle, it's over a two hour hike or walk through the mountains and rainforest to get to the health center where you can deliver a baby. And they may or may not have the supplies they need. Government hospitals there sometimes are just empty. I mean, your family comes, if you want food, your family has to come and feed you there. Like basically build a fire, have the food and a pot and pan and then feed you. It's been pretty gnarly, but we have a $1.5 million commitment of the medical supplies, which is incredible. incredible. And we just got to build it and then it's going to be outfitted. Incredible. And so they're going to have a place to have safe births. And But while I was there this last time, a mother went into labor early. Her baby was turned the wrong way and we lost both the mother and the child. I'm so sorry. Yeah. At this point in the interview, I see Justin's face and I can tell just how personally affected he was by each individual life he connected with. The mothers, the babies, each of the beautiful people who taught him so much. And ultimately, whatever kept him from taking his own life after fighting so hard to save so many others. Justin shuffles in his chair and I almost feel as if I'm able to watch the thoughts wash over him. The labor, the loss of mom and baby, the feeling of helplessness, followed by the feeling of strength, service, and gratitude now that is his mission to serve and assist coming vividly to life. I lean in and follow his energetic lead. I saw a video earlier that you showed me, Justin, that was these kids drinking water and it looks like my kids when they get a new set of Legos or they get a new thing of candy, you know? And you realize the entitlement that we have in this country. Because by the way, they'll probably play with those Legos for three days and get totally bored and want new Legos. These kids were looking at that water the same way my kids look at, you know, 
a new toy from the store. They were so excited. They were passionately lapping it up. Simple things, right? Right. So if you had one thing to tell people about gratitude and about happiness, in your opinion, based on what you've seen, what is the key to it? Gratitude gives you a new perspective and a new lease on life. Gratitude betters every relationship and every interaction. And for me, the key to it is starting small and growing it from there. Mm-hmm. Well, just like anything, mm-hmm. you're not going to master it right at first if you have ingrained, deeply ingrained neuropathways that just might not normally lean towards gratitude. Mm-hmm. I don't think mine was that way, but I think I've drilled it of like, anytime I feel gratitude, I say it, no matter what no matter who it's to, even if I just met them. If there's something small I'm grateful for with them, I'm going to let them know. Yeah, it reinforces and, the and neural pathway. It's an exercise, right? And, and learn how to accept it too. That's been the hardest thing for me. If someone's actually grateful for you, like instead of saying, no, no worries, or, uh, or it wasn't a big deal, or just shrugging it off, or even internally. It's like allow them to be grateful because I think I think sometimes we feel undeserving of it and we're people pleasing too. So we do want to hear it, but I wonder what I'm trying to say here, except for the more that I've been grateful for someone and I see them resisting it, I lean into it even harder so they can feel it. Like, and I make sure I at least try, maybe they think I'm a weirdo and I can't really be grateful for that. But I, I think today I told someone and they looked away and I kind of got in their eyesight And I literally put my hand on their heart and I go, no, I really want you to know how grateful I am for you. And then it kind of shifted to like, wow, thanks. I'm I'm grateful too. And I'm like, are you grateful about yourself about that? Because you should be, it's awesome. You pour love into people, Justin. Uh, I think that's a pretty good way to be. Justin, please feel the eyes and heart of our entire Gratitudeology audience right now pouring their gratitude into you for showing up here today and sharing your amazing story. Oh, and if you'd like to pour into something else Justin is doing and help make a difference, visit his site, fightfortheforgotten.org, and click on that campaign called Compassion in Action, where every dollar donated will be matched. That's all for today. Remember, if you like what you heard, if it impacted you in any way, and if you think it's a message other people in your life might like to hear, I'd be so grateful if you'd give me five stars, leave a quick little comment, those things really help, and share this podcast with your friends, either on social media or just word of mouth. I'm on a mission for us all to help each other focus on expanding our attention towards what's good in the world rather than focusing on what's bad, one person at a time. If we all did that, even to our own little sphere of influence, the world has the potential to be a much more radically awesome place. Stick with me, friends. I've got your back. We're in this together, and it's a great day to see the greatness in the day. See you next time. The Gratitudeology podcast is written, executive produced, and hosted by me, Jamie Hess. Sound design and studio production by Gotham Production Studios. Our theme song is Maze by Hills, sung by Nadia Ali. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Gratitudeology. Would you ride through the storm? Will you walk on a wire? Will you save me if I fall? Will you break through the madness that us down with?
I'll be right here waiting till you find.